Hey guys, it's Hiba, and this is Kerning Cultures. Stories from the Middle East and the spaces in between. And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. And you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Today, we're going to switch things up a bit. There's this book that came out in August of 2019 that our Casey team has been kind of obsessed with, and we want to share it with you. The book is called Our Women on the Ground. It's a collection of English essays by Arab female reporters talking about what it's like reporting on and from their home countries. It was very difficult for some of them to take a step backwards and to to, to even approach the notion of telling their own stories versus the stories of others. My name is Zahra Hankir, or Zara Hankir, depending on who's pronouncing it. Um, I'm a London-based journalist, and I am Lebanese. She's also the editor of the book, Our Women on the Ground. I would say the idea had been brewing for years. Um, Being an Arab woman journalist myself, who understands both the Western media landscape and the local Arab media landscape, I always felt that those who had attention or who commanded the narrative in the global media space were Western for the most part and for decades had been male as well. Uh, I think that's starting to change, but my goal always had been to amplify the voices of local women journalists who were doing work on the ground because I felt that the challenges that they were facing were unique the reporting that they were doing was unique and that we needed to celebrate the fact that they were doing this kind of reporting, um, given that many of them were risking their lives um, to do that. So um, it was a combination of things. I would say it was an act of celebration, but also wanting to promote a more complete and nuanced narrative on the Arab world. The essays in this book range from this one by an Egyptian photojournalist, Iman Hilal, who writes about the years of sexual harassment she experienced at work and on the streets. And there's another essay by a Syrian-American journalist, Nur Malas, who unintentionally becomes involved in a story she was covering when she let this guy, Samir, a Syrian refugee, borrow her phone at a train platform in Germany. Can you tell me about the name of the book? That's producer Alex Atak interviewing so, Zahra. Um, I mean, it, it comes from the phrase our man on the ground, which I believe was initially used by an American military commander during the Vietnam War um, in reference to American troops on the ground in Vietnam. And um, in in the journalistic world, it sort of became a phrase that was used for male foreign reporters who were on the ground in conflict zones. So we often would hear that, oh, you know, we have a man on the ground in Beirut or we have a man on the ground in Baghdad. And I wanted to just flip that phrase on its head and and in two ways, really. First, to change man to, to women. And secondly, to, to, to indicate that these women are actually on the ground, on their homeland, in their homelands. They're not foreigners who are being parachuted in. And there's this one woman, Asma, whose essay is particularly powerful. Asma Al-Ghul is a Palestinian um, journalist who currently lives in exile in France. And her essay is so incredibly moving. It's a bit of a slow burn, I think. Um, She just went through all of these different conflicts within 
a broader conflict of her own homeland. And it's also incredibly harrowing the way that she captures those um, fractures within her identity and, and how it all comes together at the end. So today on Kerning Culture's Asmat's essay, here is Zahra Hankir reading from Our Women on the Ground, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world. It was edited by Zahra and published by Penguin Books in the U.S. and Harvel Secker in the U.K. in August 2019. Here we go. Okay, so this essay is uh, entitled Between the Explosions. It's by Palestinian journalist Asma Lughul. It was actually originally written in Arabic and was translated by Maryam Antar into English. Maryam Antar happens to be my mother. There's one question that always seems to nag at me, whether I'm cooking for my children, walking home in the freezing French winter after dropping my daughter Zena off at school, or even buying a baguette. Is this what I want? Do I really want to be the ordinary mother I dreamt of being all those years while I was working as a journalist in the Gaza Strip? I won't deny that when I come across pictures of former colleagues on social media, I feel a rush of nostalgia for the breaking news, the interviews, the travels, and the conferences that are part of a journalist's life. Occasionally, I yearn to be back on the field and in the editing room. But then I'll remember what I endured during those long years when my job as a journalist took priority over the literary career I longed for and over raising my son and daughter. I feel guilty about never having written down all the short stories and novels I constructed in my head, as journalism had stripped me of language and feelings, and for having missed my son's childhood because I was so focused on my career. I'm keen to avoid repeating the mistake with my daughter. My ex-husband worked in the same field as me. I often wonder if our marriage would have survived had I dedicated myself to our life together, rather than focusing solely on my journalistic ambitions. I increasingly felt useless, and the gap between us grew larger. As it did, other problems started to emerge. What has journalism done to me? I'm 35, twice divorced, and a single mother of two. I willingly left behind all my journalistic achievements in Gaza, my hometown, and came to a foreign country to start anew. What and who am I here? In the middle of war, you investigate and you write story after story after story, but you lose your own story in between the explosions. Somewhere amid the reporting, the rapid political changes, and the writing, you find yourself in an existence you never chose, an existence dictated by the political situation around you. Even if you find strength and success in that existence, you can never choose what you truly want. In 2003, I got married for the first time, leaving my journalistic career in Palestine behind to move to the United Arab Emirates with my husband. In the hopes that I would continue my career in the UAE, I sent my CV to media outlets all over the country, but to no avail. I chose instead to immerse myself in literature. In fact, I had first entered the world of writing through literature, not journalism. As a young girl and aspiring author, I wrote poetry and short stories. I was enamored with literature. I had also come to discover that journalism drains your energy, while literature can save your soul. In the UAE, I found myself resorting to literature as a distraction from my pain and loneliness. 
My husband had a large and rich library filled with books and DVDs that he hardly ever touched. That space became my life, so much so that each book I read or film I watched haunted me. After watching the film The Others, I spent the night terrified. After reading Perfume by Patrick Suskind, I felt depressed, even more depressed than I already was. And after reading Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I felt like my heart was skipping with joy, even though I was cooped up in a small apartment in an Abu Dhabi high-rise that I barely ever left. Sometimes I paced the apartment, which in reality was no more than a prison. One day, I opened the front door, walked out, and never came back. I got a divorce and took my clipped wings and my son back home to Gaza in 2005, having realized that I couldn't truly fly anywhere but there. I eventually found work as a reporter for the Palestinian newspaper at AM. I'd been wanting to work there since high school, so this was nothing short of a dream for me. I also volunteered for a human rights organization, helping them launch their own magazine. The work, though unpaid, energized me and allowed me to visit areas all over the Gaza Strip. The time I spent at Al-Ayam helped me hone my journalistic and linguistic skills. Still, I very much felt that literature was an entire body of language, while journalism was just the leftovers. Literature and writing nourished me, while journalism was a sacrifice. Every time I wrote as a journalist, I felt I was losing my ability to write literary prose. Journalism also caused me to lose my sense of self as I was focused on external things, people at wartime, instead of internal ones. I tried to merge the two worlds. One of the first pieces I wrote for LAM was a review of Gate of the Sun, a film based on a book by novelist Elias Khoury, which was published in the art section of the newspaper. I was proud of it, but shortly thereafter, the editor on the local desk delivered a message to me from the editor-in-chief of the newspaper. He needed journalists, not critics. Despite the obstacles, I continued pursuing my literary ambitions. Soon after I joined LAM in 2005, I was awarded grants from external organizations for my writing. Thanks to these grants, I traveled to the United States twice and to South Korea once. Each time I traveled, LAM froze my salary, even though I wrote cultural dispatches for them from wherever I was. My editors did not approve of how long it took me to write and research stories. I didn't want to rush, but they wanted me to file articles daily. Some of them seemed to measure news by quantity and word count, not by quality. This was my depressing world, but I learned to carve my own niche. For example, if my editors asked me to report on an ordinary conference, I would find an extraordinary moment in that conference to write about. By the time Israel invaded northern Gaza in 2006, I had put my literary writing on hold and become a full-fledged conflict reporter. I went straight to the front lines where bullets whizzed by my ears without a bulletproof vest or any other form of protection afforded to foreign news crews. Nothing would deter me. There were moments of sheer terror, but there were also moments of liberation. I enjoyed the fact that I was finally at the front lines, just like my peers who worked for foreign news outlets. Those of us covering the events were all cheating death or playing with it. I played that game multiple times during my reporting career out of my own free will until I learned what real fear was. Looking back, it's hard for me to internalize how courageous I was with my pen. It was as if I were a different woman. 
It's unclear where I left that particular self, at which door, in which city, with which war. I was, of course, scared for my child, but I never felt for a moment that I had to sacrifice my job because of my role as a mother. Why should women have to make those kinds of choices? I behaved like any career-focused journalist would, and during war, there is no time to think about whether or not you love your job. You simply do what you have to do, fueled by a desire to tell the truth. Perhaps this sounds like a cliche, but in reality, it is dangerously true. Just over two years later, I feared for my child again when war broke out in Gaza. It was as if the gates of hell had opened. The situation was so chaotic at the beginning that it took us a few days to gauge what was actually happening. On the first day of the war, a huge explosion rocked the city at 11.15 a.m. My first instinct was to rush to my son's school in the Tal al-Hawa neighborhood. People everywhere were running and screaming. The area was engulfed in smoke, buildings had been destroyed, and I could hear a series of explosions in the distance. A car stopped for me, and the driver gave me a lift to the school. As soon as I arrived, I rushed to my son's classroom and saw shards of glass on his seat. I panicked and looked for him among the crying children. He was sitting on the floor with the others, but he wasn't crying, just flushed. I took him home. Others were not as lucky. People everywhere were desperately looking for their children or siblings. During the first two days of the war, no one left their homes. We hadn't truly experienced war before then. This kind of terror was new to us. It wasn't an invasion or an isolated incident of shelling or an assassination. It was an all-out war. Planes, tanks and warships all striking Gaza at the same time. Throughout the war, danger kept us company. Every minute of every day was terrifying. I was playing with death on one hand and defending my womanhood to society on the other, trying to prove that women can cover a war alongside men while keeping their so-called honor intact. I sometimes felt as though danger and death were very distant and my strength would protect me. I got so used to writing about death that I felt it could not possibly make me its victim. I resigned from LAM in 2009 after it became clear that I would no longer be allowed to remain neutral in my reporting. Divisions between Fatah and Hamas, the two main Palestinian political parties, had started to emerge. Not one newspaper or broadcaster, including LAM, escaped the polarization. My pen was expected to take sides. Amid those divisions, Hamas started a campaign to Islamize the Gaza Strip. In July 2009, I had my own confrontation with them while I was at the beach. I was sitting with friends at a public cafe when an armed group of men in civilian clothing began hurling insults and untruths at us, claiming that we were partying and going swimming in indecent clothing. We defended ourselves with words and reason. It was a conflict over virtue. Who had the moral high ground? What did it mean to be honorable? imposing morals with the force of arms or giving people the freedom to choose. The Hamas operatives arrested the young men who were with us that evening, but I refused to go along with them, so they seized my passport. When they asked if I had a mahram with me, I said I was in my late 20s, why would I need one? They continued to exert pressure on me, so I called my father, who told them he knew exactly where I was. After one of the Hamas men received several calls demanding he back down, he reluctantly returned the passport to me. As he left, he warned me, I'll be following you. 
And I, you, I replied. The following day, the story of what happened to me and my friends at the beach reached various media outlets and human rights organizations. Islamists tend to count on the fact that incidents having to do with women and their reputation or honor get swept under the rug. But my brave friends and I wouldn't let that happen. The war between the truth and so-called virtue lasted all summer. Rumors started circulating about the event, twisting the reality of what happened. Some people implied that we were caught in some sort of a shameful situation. When my friends were released, they told us they were asked all sorts of absurd questions during the investigation. Among them, have you slept with X? How would you feel if your sister hung out with your friends? Would you approve if your sister had a relationship with a friend of yours? What a terrifying perception of sexuality. Male promiscuity is allowed for a man's honor is untouchable. This is how a group of fellow activists and I came to form the youth movements Isha, Wake Up, and the Secular Youth Congregation. We started organizing protests and issuing press releases that challenged how Islam and Gaza were portrayed. We protested the closure of Sharik, a youth organization. We organized our first sit-in during the election period of 2010, just before the Arab Spring erupted in Tunisia. The elections never actually transpired. I had stepped away from both journalism and literature, becoming instead a political activist. I stopped working for the printed press, but stayed on as a reporter with Skies, and also began a blog about current events that was soon frequented by thousands of visitors. I took to the streets to demand change, because I didn't want to simply champion certain values from an ivory tower leaving the people to bear the brunt of carrying out those demands. I wanted to be honest, I didn't want my words to contradict my actions. Just over a year later, the Arab Spring was upon us. We started to believe in our ability to inspire change. The toppling of Tunisian President Zain al-Abidin bin Ali lifted our hopes further. The events galvanized newly formed youth movements across the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Activists organized protests in solidarity with the revolutionaries in Egypt. But there were certainly moments when I was engaging in this sort of political activism that I started to miss journalism and its objectivity. I grew tired of the constant confrontation of having to fight to defend our dreams. I was arrested in the midst of these protests on January 31st, 2011. It was a difficult experience. I was beaten, insulted, and intimidated by both male and female members of Hamas. And of course, we also had to deal with infiltrators, people who were planted into our youth movements by political parties. Still, the majority of us had only one motive, liberating Gaza from its prison and its pain. We wanted unity among Palestinians. Less than two months after my first arrest, I was arrested again. It was March 15, 2011, a date that would mark Gaza's attempt at the Arab Spring. We demonstrated, calling for an end to the political polarization among Palestinians. Perhaps our slogan should have specifically called for the fall of the ruling parties. It would have been a stronger and more pointed message. Supporters of Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza took to the streets to oppose our demonstrations. In Gaza, men in tracksuits and pajamas, since they weren't in uniform, no one could accuse them of being part of Hamas, attacked us with knives and sticks and hurled profanities at us. Some of the protesters got into skirmishes, and sure enough, by the end of the day, a number of activists, including me, had been arrested in both Gaza and the West Bank. 
While I was in jail, I saw those same men in the tracksuits and pajamas handing cameras and other items they had confiscated from protesters, journalists and street vendors to the authorities. That was the same day the revolution in Syria started. We even shared the same hashtag, hashtag Mark 15, leading an electronic stampede in cyberspace. But their struggle went on for years, whereas ours quickly dissipated. Those in power defamed, interrogated and beat the family members of activists in an attempt to pressure us into backing down. My father was among those targeted. I began to lose hope. The tension escalated to the point that by the end of March 2011, I felt I had to leave. I moved to Cairo, Egypt. While living there, I traveled to attend workshops and conferences in various European cities, meeting young activists from all over the Arab world. I soon met an Egyptian journalist in Cairo, and we got married in October. I continued to blog, but I was starting to miss the neutrality of journalism even more. I grew tired of traveling and longed for Gaza. Over a period of three years, from 2011 to 2013, I moved between Egypt and Gaza. Every time my family traveled to or from the Strip, we suffered enormously at the Rafah border crossing. That suffering weighed on my marriage, which by that point had already become fragile. Eventually, I gave up on adapting to Egypt and boldly made my way back to Gaza to stay. I was pregnant with my daughter then and had to start from zero yet again. I continued reporting on breaches against journalists for Skies and worked on research papers about the youth in the Arab Spring. I began reading again, engaged less and less in politics and didn't go to demonstrations. My husband came back to Gaza for the birth of my baby, Zena. Her arrival lessened the rift between us ever so slightly. The lingering tensions became more obvious after the start of the fall of the Arab Spring in 2012, however. It was as if our personal project were intractably linked to the Arab Spring project. Despite our marital troubles, my husband and I traveled together that year to Los Angeles, where I was to receive the Courage in Journalism Award from the International Women's Media Foundation. While we were there, I sensed a new war was creeping up on Gaza. I feared for my family and my son, whom I had left there. My husband remained in America while I returned to Gaza with my infant daughter. A week later, the 2012 war erupted. The airstrikes were ferocious. I left the house during the bombings to take photos. I posted them on my Facebook page, which was even more popular than my blog. I also continued to report for Skies, the only organization I remained committed to throughout. During the war, I wondered how life might have been different had I been a regular mother who wasn't living and working in a war zone. I watched my daughter, Zena, recoil in fear for the first time at the noise of shelling. My son, daughter, nephew, and I all slept in the foyer of the house. The war brought us ever closer. We were scared together and we laughed together. We didn't leave home like hundreds of families did. We sometimes argued over what was better, to stay or to leave, but we stayed. I decided after that 2012 eight-day war to stay away from politics and also to stop believing in change. It was hard to admit that I hated what I used to love. I took off my political and social hats and focused again on journalism. I didn't just want to be a journalist again. I needed it. Despair was eating me up. But after my protests against the government in Gaza, nobody wanted to employ me. I had been labeled a troublemaker and a rebel. 
Eventually, I found a job with Al Monitor, a US-based news website. I trained myself to be objective again. Journalism forced me to focus on what was right in front of me. I wrote daring reports. I was still fighting the Palestinian divisions, mind you. But this time with investigations, not protests. I also secured a book deal for my book, A Rebel in Gaza. Even though I'd occasionally felt as though the only things I knew I wanted in life were to write and to become a mother, and at this point I had done both, my moments of doubt were constant. After my book was published, people sent me letters of appreciation and admiration, but I often felt like I couldn't see what they described as my accomplishments. My husband returned from the US to settle with us in Gaza, but the professional jealousy between us, both in literature and in journalism, peaked. It's difficult for a woman who has succeeded in one particular field to live with a man looking to succeed in the same field. This certainly was not the sole cause of the escalating tension between us, but it was definitely one of them. Our relationship came to an end and we separated in early 2014. Love came to an end and the Arab Spring came to an end and dreams came crumbling down. When Facebook reminds me of what I posted back then, I laugh at my illusions. We thought that we were going to change the world. Where did I get all that confidence from? How did I come to think I was so influential and that my thoughts and the thoughts of my generation would make a difference in the world? Our entire generation believed in change. We were out on the streets protesting. We resisted and we insisted. Perhaps it was our youth and our first loves that gave us such hope. But then everything stopped moving. Politics became filthier than ever before. We were the victims of a whirlwind of emotions, social media, and the people we met in this revolutionary environment. How I pity the generation that will have to go out to do it all over again. We were delusional. That is why we woke up and found ourselves in complete chaos. What our revolutionaries lacked was not ideology, but practical means. Life is not built on, nor does it change through Facebook or social media. Those changes come through streets, schools, colleges, and other educational institutions. My personal pain was indeed immense. Little did I know that a bigger pain was around the corner, waiting for me. The 2014 war lasted for 51 days. It was like nothing before. I had experienced fear, danger, death, and sadness in the previous two wars, But in this war, we experienced a fear of everything and a fear for everything. We didn't sleep, eat, or walk without a lump in our throats and a knot in our hearts. I chased death. I even felt like I was looking for it. I took risks. I traveled all over Gaza, both alone and with other journalists, in taxis whose drivers would call their families and say their goodbyes before setting off on the journey to dangerous places. I didn't contact anyone. My family didn't even know where I was sometimes. My friends learned of my whereabouts only when my stories were published on Al Monitor. My mother would get angry because she was so worried. She would even cry. I've always left a trail of tears behind me, like when I left tears in my son's eyes during the first war, which I now regret deeply. I wanted to gather the pain of the war's wounds into my arms so it could join my old wounds, but the war had burned the air in my chest. I couldn't breathe or protect my son and daughter. My son Nasser lost his speech when the tower next to our home was bombed repeatedly. 
During that bombing, I was wounded by shrapnel and stones when I rushed to bring my father into safety from the balcony. Israeli forces attacked Rafah on August 1, 2014. I was flooded with dozens of messages telling me that it was my duty to cover the invasion since it was my hometown. I was the only journalist from Gaza to visit Rafah, along with three reporters from the New York Times whom I'd convinced to join me, despite the fact that any car traveling to or from the area was a target for the Israel Defense Forces. Our driver gave me his bulletproof vest and helmet to wear. It was the first time I wore a bulletproof vest in the three wars that I covered. As soon as we entered Rafah, we watched a plane shelling the home of a local family, the Abu Tahas. We went to the Kuwaiti hospital straight away, where we witnessed some family members carry in the dead and wounded. Among them was a tiny baby dressed in pink. I went into a room and saw people lining up the dead bodies. Everything in that scene pointed to the fact that those corpses had been alive just moments earlier. Their clothes, the position of their bodies, and their white feet. I thought that if I talked to them, they would talk back. I recognized the baby from moments earlier. He was dead. His name was Riz Abu Taha. I went into another room where a distraught and hysterical mother was wailing. She asked if I had come across a baby dressed in pink, the dead baby on the floor that I had just seen. She didn't know he was dead, and everyone was hiding the tragedy from her intentionally. She held me as if she knew I wouldn't lie to her, begging me to tell the truth. I couldn't lie, because if it were me, I wouldn't want to be lied to. When I told her that her child was among the dead, the woman collapsed, And so, too, did my role as a journalist. In those very moments, I acted beyond my role as a journalist. I acted like a mother. The woman held me tight, not believing what I had just said, screaming and asking me again and again if it was true. The child was her firstborn. She held her breasts and wailed, What will I do with these now? Referring to her breast milk. I returned to Gaza with my father, who had been visiting my grandma in the south during a ceasefire. He warned me about the risk of being bombed, so I distracted him with family stories until I looked out the window and realized that we were safely out of Rafah, but Rafah wouldn't leave us. The next morning, Sunday, August 3, 2014, I woke up to a phone call from a journalist who had called to inform me that my uncle's family home had been hit in a missile attack. Their house had been built by my grandfather when he moved to Rafah in 1948 after the Israelis occupied his home village, Sarafan del Ammar. I was born and grew up in that house. Two missiles fired by an F-16 aircraft hit the house at 6.20 a.m. that fateful morning. Those two missiles killed my uncle, Ismail al-Ghul, his wife, Khadra al-Ghul, their two sons, Wa'il and Muhammad, their two daughters, Hanadi and Asma, and my cousin Wa'il's three children, Mustafa, Malak, and Ismail. All nine of my family members were martyred by that Israeli bombing. I saw their pictures on social media. My youngest cousin's corpse was placed in an ice cream freezer, the only available freezer in the entire hospital. I was lucky that I had been able to say my farewells to all the victims before they passed away. 
On the fifth day of the war, I had taken a risk and gone to Rafah to write about the bombing that had killed the Ghannam family. While I was there, I visited my uncle's family and took pictures. Amal, my cousin's wife, had just given birth to twin baby boys, Mustafa and Ibrahim. They were tiny, much like two angels. When I saw them, I felt they were a window of hope and light. I didn't know then that that would be the last time I would ever see some of them. We laughed and talked about the coincidence that had allowed us to meet. How I wished I'd stayed longer and talked more. The picture I took of the twins is now priceless, since one twin, Mustafa, was martyred while the other twin, Ibrahim, survived along with his mother. Life is full of surprises, and so too is writing. When we look at the past, it seems like it's begotten by today, like it happened to facilitate everything that's happening at this moment. As Svetlana Alexievich says, we look at the past from today. We cannot look at it from anywhere else. Looking back, it's hard to believe that all those experiences were mine. I moved to France in the summer of 2016, perhaps in part due to the stress and pressure I had endured while on the field. I constantly wavered between my job and my family, wanting to ensure my family's safety on one hand and wanting to cover conflict in a distinguished way on the other. I was caught between being a mother soothing a son's and a daughter's fears and at the same time writing about other women's children who were being killed by the hundreds. That struggle never went away and I would face it in all three conflicts that I covered. Those strong memories persist. My family and I often speak about them. They have become a part of our personal history. What I do know for certain is that exceptional circumstances have put me in many different situations. Often, the choices I made in those situations were out of my hands. I probably wouldn't have made the same decisions had I been living under normal circumstances. Back then, the exceptional was often normal, although the normal now feels like it's a terrible exception that I'm not as good at handling. Starting anew is daunting. It's more than I can bear. There are questions I carry with me every second. When I'm asleep and when I'm awake, regarding war and peace, literature and journalism, blogging or writing. Is this me? Am I doing what others want from me or what I want? I still don't know the answer. This episode was produced by Alex Atak with editorial support from Dana Balutz, Tamara Rasamni, and myself, Hiba Fisher. Sound design by Mohamed Khayzat, and Bella Ibrahim is our marketing manager. Thank you to Zahra Hankir, who read this essay, to Asma El Ghul, who wrote it, and to Maryam Antar, who translated Asma's essay from Arabic. We'll put a link for where to buy the book in the show notes. Really, we can't recommend it enough. Lastly, a huge thank you to our new patrons supporting us on Patreon this month. To Widad, Deborah, Mila, and Ahmed. You guys are honestly helping to make the production of stories like this possible. If you're listening to this and you love Kerning Cultures, we want you to know that we're an independent podcast company, so your financial support directly affects what we're able to do. 
Right now, with our currently monthly membership earnings, we're able to cover about 60% of the cost of commissioning a freelancer to work on a story with us each month. Help us get to the $800 we need to cover the full rate. Anything you're able to regularly give helps. Cheers start at a dollar a month and include perks. Go to patreon.com slash cultures or just click the link in this episode's description. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 